Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that would like to remind all of us that the five Ds of dodgeball are dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge. Ladies and gentlemen, he is our captain. And remember, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. We still have some coldies in the garage fridge. Today we got Polygamy Porter from Wasatch Brewery. On the back of the can it says, why just have one? And we agree. So we are having another one today. They have locations in Salt Lake and in Park City. And we are giving them four out of five bottle caps. And thanks and praise goes out to the following. From all the way over in London, cheers to Hannah. And a big we like your jib to Dustin in Nashville, Tennessee. Next up, we have a cheers to Elizabeth in Campbell River, Canada. Miss Elizabeth. And a big shout out to Tina in Carmichael, California. And a long distance cheers to our friend Alana in Edinburgh, Scotland. And last but certainly not least, we have Wendy in Hampshire in the UK. Thanks to everybody for helping us fill up the fridge this week. If you want to donate to the beer fund, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the little donate button. And for a limited time, we have computer shirts available on the store page. There's only a handful left, so go there now, order today, and that is enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
we had told him we were out putting up flyers. Well, he wanted wanted me to give him a couple flyers, and then he told me at the same time. He said, "Well, if you guys stay tomorrow, I'll take you up in the mountains, and he'd show us where she was." But then he had told me before he couldn't understand why they hadn't went and got her body and picked her up. And he told us that they had, the reason they told her exactly where she was was because they wanted her to get her breast implants and her nor plant. So they told him, and I asked him, did, so did they just throw her over a ravine? No, no, they didn't throw her over no cliff or nothing. She's buried. He assured me of that. And it, he knew exactly where she was buried at because they had told him it. Mm -hmm a map or something. So I told her, are you crazy? You know, I said, she said, what? Well, he's going to come over to the motel tonight and he's going to show me how Jennifer was murdered. And if it hurts too much to tell him to stop, then he'll stop. And then he's, uh, he's going to take me up the mountain and show him where she's buried. He was going to demonstrate how she was killed on yeah, her. Specifically how she was murdered. Did he ever come over and do that? He came over that night. When we got back to the motel room, and she said that we couldn't be there at the motel room, that we were supposed to leave, that he said that for him to come and do this, that she was, we was going to have to leave. And I told, I told her, me and Noah went down there and told her, you know, you're crazy, Mary. If you do that, he's going to kill you, and you're not going to ever be seen again. And Mary said, well, she didn't care. She wanted to know where her daughter was. If she had to be killed, then that was just the way it was. Did that meeting ever take she place? She was willing to give up her life to find out what happened to Jennifer. And she was crying. And so we told her, if you do that, you know, you're going to be dead. Scott comes by there later on that evening. He doesn't show up till 12 o'clock at night. Well, he goes and knocks on Mary's door. Mary had said she didn't tell him her room number, that she was uh, going to meet him in the lobby when he came. But for some reason, he comes right to her door. She looked out the people, and there's Scott knocking on her door. So then she says, she starts fumbling around and asking, acting like she's doing other things. And uh, tells him, well, go down to the lobby, and I'll be down in a minute. i got to do some things. And he said he kept telling her he wanted her to let him in. He wanted to make sure, he wanted her to take her clothes off, check her, make sure she didn't have a wire on her. And once she did that, then he'd show her, you know, how Jennifer would murder. Scott Kimball is out of prison living under a new identity that was provided to him by the FBI. Now, one of the first things that Scott did once he was out was to contact a woman named Leanne Emery. Leanne is 24 years old, and she's a veterinary assistant. But more importantly to our story, Leanne is the girlfriend of an inmate who was friends with Scott. So as you can see from our first episode and already into this one, Scott was very busy while he was in prison. Because while he was behind bars, not only did 
Scott managed to, and I'm using air quotes here, discover Steve Ennis and Jennifer Markham's supposed murder for hire plot, which Scott made up. Scott also made friends with an inmate named Stephen Holly. So Stephen Holly is a convicted bank robber. He's serving a life sentence. And because he's going to be in prison for the rest of his days, he's got a really good idea, Captain. He's going to escape from prison one of these days. Now, Stephen becomes buddies with Scott. And he knows that Scott is going to be out soon. So he tells his buddy Scott, could you do me a favor once you get out? I want you to get in contact with my girlfriend. Her name's Leanne. And I want you to tell her the details of my prison escape plan. That way she can meet up with me in Mexico once I'm out and once I'm free. So in a letter to his girlfriend, Stephen told Leanne to listen to Scott, to trust him, saying that he's a really great guy. And he says, I call this guy Hannibal. So please call him Hannibal. So Scott did. He called Leanne. He got in contact with her. He introduced himself to her as Hannibal. Right. This was, might be the first indication that Scott Kimball fancied himself some sort of Hannibal Lecter-esque type, you know, conniving, scheming, genius kind of dude. Now, Scott wasn't interested in a friendship or a trusted advisor role with Leanne like he was asked to do by his friend Stephen. Nope, just in typical Scott fashion, he's going to take advantage of the situation. So Scott swooped in and swept her off her feet. He stole Leanne from Stephen. To Leanne Scott... But didn't he also tell Stephen that he could possibly get her a job as well no i believe he told that to her uh he may have told that to him i don't i don't know the circumstances of that what i believe he was charged with by his good friend convicted bank robber stephen holly was simply to get in contact with her and say to her hey this is where we can meet up once i escape and when i escape to leanne scott presented himself as a tough guy who knew powerful people and who could get things done Emails from Leanne to her cousin written in January of 2003 state that Hannibal is, quote, a major blessing in my life, end quote. Leanne, well, she was vulnerable. She had bipolar disorder. She was working as a stripper. She had been in an abusive marriage before. And then, mind you, at this time, she's in a relationship with a convicted bank robber who's in prison. Scott and Leanne were involved in a sexual relationship just within days of meeting. And Leanne made vague references to criminal activity that Hannibal was involved in. She said that he could have her killed if he wanted to. She did not know how right she probably was. In January, this is on the 16th in 2003, Leanne lied to her parents, whom she lived with at the time. She told them that she was going to Mexico on a cave exploration trip with some friends. Instead, what was really going on, Captain, she left the area with Scott Kimball, who she believes is Hannibal. Mm -hmm. The two traveled through seven states, mostly together, but at times separately, as Scott had to stop into Seattle on FBI business. He must have instructed Leanne on how to get by using 
overdraft checks because Leanne wrote checks overdrawing her account by $4,000 during this time. The trail of bad checks shows that she traveled from Colorado and stopped in Wyoming, Oregon, Washington, and Nevada before returning to Colorado and checking into a Super 8 motel in Grand Junction. This on January 27th. Wasn't she running up charges on her father's credit card as well? Yeah, yeah, she was. And and she also bought a forty caliber Firestar handgun at a pawn shop in Oregon along this uh, this trip that she was taking. We know that these means, these um, the credit card charges and these checks, they're possibly her. We don't have 100% proof that she was doing this. It could have been Scott doing this. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. And here's something I wonder about, too. The purchase of this firearm, if she, in fact, was the one that purchased it, you wonder, is this Scott Kimball that says, hey, we need to get a gun for our trip, or you should have a gun, and it's really going to be for him in some some form? Right, because this, at some point she could have said, hey, I'm going to go on this um, adventure with friends, and she takes off with Scott at some point it could turn into a hostage situation where he's going, I have control of you. Now you're going to do everything I tell you to do. Well, what's going to happen is really, it's a bit of a mystery truthfully, because on January 28th, Scott told his FBI handler, this is agent Schlaff that we discussed in the last episode that he was going to go to California. Okay. I'm going to California. I'm going there to see my brother. Mm Mm-hmm. At this time, Scott's phone goes offline for about 29 hours. It came back on at 1.13 a.m. on January 30th. Now, during the time that the phone was offline, something else took place. This is on January 29th. Leanne Emery checked out of the Grand Junction, Colorado Super 8 Motel where she, where she stayed that night. Right. She was never seen alive again. Soon thereafter, her father, Howard Emery, got word that her car had been found abandoned in the state of Utah. Yeah, not just abandoned. It was pretty much like in the desert. Yeah, and then in February of 2003, Howard started receiving letters from Leanne's incarcerated boyfriend, Stephen Holly. Mm-hmm. In the letters, Stephen told Howard that his daughter was in real trouble. One of the letters read, quote, I don't fully understand what the hell she thought she was doing, but I know she is way out of her league. Alarmed by these letters, Howard checked on Leanne's paper trail to see where she had actually been. And this is when he discovered all the bounced checks uh, through multiple states. Right. Howard took all of this to the FBI office in Denver where he was told that Stephen Holly is a liar. Where you know we we don't we don't see that there's any kind of case or any needed investigation here because the man that you're speaking to, the convicted bank robber serving life in liar. prison, yeah. he's he's a liar. Mm-hmm. And you know how they know. They just check to see if his pants are on fire. <laughs> sorry that's a bad joke uh happy saint patrick's day the fbi refused to follow up as we said on this now this remained the case even after howard met with stephen holly in prison and this is where holly told him that leanne was with he believed he was she was with somebody 
that went by the name Hannibal. So you have a little bit of a lead there, but it's it's interesting that Scott Kimball was either just a just a stroke of luck here, right? Or is it some kind of brilliance that he already had this this other name that he was using in relation to Stephen Holly? It almost makes the trail go cold because there is no real Hannibal out there. You wonder how much this could have been followed up on mm-hmm. if if they would have taken the time to to do so. Now, probably all at the same time or right around the same time, Captain, that Scott was involved with this Leanne Emery, Scott worked his charms on Jennifer Markham. Remember, we spoke about her a little bit. You'll recall that Jennifer was the girlfriend of Steve Ennis, Scott's cellmate and the supposed co-conspirator in a murder a murder plot against drug dealer, Jason price. It seems that she was possibly an important witness as well in a federal drug case. And that's why the FBI, they let Scott out. But remember he's out with the idea of here's your fake identity. We need you to keep an eye on her and stop any possible murder plots that might be about to take place. Captain, Scott Kimball may have been quite the ladies man. I don't know, or at least he's just very persuasive because by February 16th, Jennifer Markham moved out of the temporary place that she was staying. This was with the father of her child, but this was not to be, this doesn't sound to me like this was a long-term place that she was going to stay. It was just temporary, right? She moves out, but she moves in with Scott Kimball. Okay, so I know there's a lot going on here, but in a very short period of time, Scott Kimball gets out of prison, gets a a new identity. He befriends this Leanne Emery. She goes missing at the end of January and already by what the second week of February, he's getting involved at least to the point where Jennifer Markham is willing to move in with him and He's well, there. that could just be a financial situation. Why don't you Which come I, stay I with me? I think it may have been, or it was some kind of... Like I said, I don't think he has the slickness or the charm that maybe a Bundy did. But he has this slickness, and tr- not a slickness, but he has, I think, it more of a charm coming from like a, a big brother or a, a father figure. Yeah, and the, I guess if you were to compare the two... My thoughts on that would be kind of a different scenario where Scott Kimball has to fool or trick a woman or anybody else for that matter, kind of a little more long-term mm-hmm. uh, wacko Ted Bundy. All he's trying to trying to get you to believe is maybe he broke his arm and you just got to get in his car or, or help him carry some books or something. That's kind right. of a, a short term, uh, uh, thing, but, but yeah, you're, you're right. He doesn't seem to have the, uh, Sexual appeal. Oh God! All right. <laughs> I didn't know. I don't know what to call it. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. Um, his parents weren't on the fire. But regardless, she moves out of this place. She goes to stay with Scott, and I'm with you. I think it's just to. She may have been moving from one temporary housing situation to another. Right. So Jennifer is a, by all accounts, a good mother. Um, she worked as a stripper at Shotgun Willie's. This to 
it, it's just one of those situations. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. What her, what her father says, what he told Dateline was she worked a job she really didn't want to just to put food on the table for her, her son, for her child. Right. Uh, Jennifer was also involved with a drug dealing felon, as we know. Remember Steve Ennis, who was in prison and was Scott's one-time cellmate. This, regardless of whatever happened, she ends up moving in with Scott. Whatever the relationship is, is not quite clear, but he's telling her this guy is just a a bevy of lies, Mm -hmm. and he's telling her that he owns a coffee cart business in uh, Seattle and that he could get her what he's calling it. You know, I can get you a real job because I'm the owner of this little business. Yeah. She moves into I his could get your own coffee cart. She did bring a bunch of furniture with her when she moved in. Uh, the two planned to leave on a trip to Washington State on the 18th. This was under the ruse that, that Jennifer could learn how to manage the coffee business from Scott. Mm-hmm. Now, on March 27th, Jennifer Markham's vehicle was found at the Denver International Airport where they were able to figure out that the car had been parked there since February 18th. So, uh, you know, I went to public school. So what the math is here, that, but that's over a month, Get right? Get your computer. Yeah. Let me, let me type it in. Uh, this is over a month, but the other tricky thing here too, is not only did the car sit at the Denver international airport for all of this time, there's no record of Jennifer having ever boarded a flight, ever departing from the area on a plane. Right. What is this car doing there? Why is it seemingly left abandoned there? The FBI did impound the vehicle, but it was not searched for months as far as records show. Her parents were not notified that the vehicle had been found until nearly about a year later. Yeah, look, if there's no evidence, I'm not going to fault anybody for not searching the vehicle, but the fact that you're not notifying her parents. Yeah. And I understand that we have this whole concept that, oh, well, they're adults. They're allowed to go missing if they want to. But it just seems like law enforcement's just going, yeah, well, she was a stripper. So. You know what's more confusing? What does it matter? Why on, does it matter if we tell her parents? What's more confusing to me on that whole level, Captain, is I, I guess I get not telling her parents, but what we have I here. I don't get it. What we have here is we have an individual that you have let somebody out of prison to keep an eye on, and her car is found abandoned at an airport, and it's been there for over a month. That seems like something to look into, right? If yeah, you're, or if they're hiding to, something. If you're or willing to work on yeah. with somebody. Yeah, or they're, or they're hiding something. And that's the other thing, too. You have to wonder what the FBI believed they were getting out of their preferential treatment of Scott Kimball, because it's not really clear. We, we would later learn that he did wear a wire for them, at least on one occasion. He did manage to get some, what, what some may call semi-incriminating statements on tape in a conversation between Scott and Jennifer. She did not solicit him or anyone else to, to kill anyone, but she did describe Jason Pierce, who, remember, the FBI believed this is the mark, that this is the target. Jason Pierce as a scumbag who 
quote, deserves to die. Scott must have been dangling just enough information in front of them that this made the agents feel they were getting somewhere in this whole situation because they did continue to work with Scott. Now, according to the Daily Camera, Scott remained out of prison with the continual help of the federal government. Scott's handler at the FBI made repeated calls to a Montana prosecutor, this to delay Scott's court hearings in the 2001 escape and theft cases that he was still facing charges there. In March of 2003, Scott signed a plea deal on the 2001 check fraud cases in Alaska. Scott pled guilty to two counts of counterfeiting a check despite having essentially stolen thousands of dollars. He agreed to continue cooperating with the government, and in return, prosecutors recommended that he get the shortest sentence possible. At the sentencing in December of 2003, Judge Marsha Krieger sentenced Scott to three years of supervised release, even though this was technically his fifth felony conviction. Yeah, it's ridiculous. She recognized that he had cooperated with the government, saying that the government points to at least three instances in which the defendant has provided substantial assistance in the investigation or prosecution of another person who has committed an offense. The judge ordered Scott to pay Wells Fargo, the bank, $8,287.94 in restitution. Judge Krieger did make a very truthful remark. She said that Scott's behavior smacks of an attitude of, I'm happy to turn other people in, but I don't want to be held fully accountable for my own behavior. By the end of March 2003, it seemed that the FBI was really starting to question their informant on what was going on with his target with Jennifer Markham. Of course, they had no idea that she was missing. They found the vehicle, but nobody investigated the abandoned vehicle. They also never received any information from the person, Scott Kimball, that they appointed to watch her that she was missing. So Scott told Agent Schlaff that Jennifer had purchased a gun and then took a flight to New York to kill her target, Jason Pierce a member of Steve Ennis's drug gang whom she and Steve were plotting to murder. Meanwhile, Scott had to earn a living somehow. Now, it looks like he had actually planned for all of this while he was still in prison, making as many friends as possible who would trust him so he could betray them later once he's out at their expense. One such target was a nearly 70-year-old doctor named John Alderman. John had also shared a cell with Scott in the pen during his stay in Colorado. The doc was in for tax evasion. When John was released, he contacted Scott. He's asking for help. He needs things like, you know, I got to set up somewhere to live and get my life back together now that I'm out. He asked Scott to cash a check for him since his bank accounts had all been seized. Remember, he's in for he was in for tax evasion. Yeah. This check was for $7,300. Now, he also asked Scott to pick up a trailer that John had lined up to live in. Well, what do you think is going to happen here, Captain? Bye-bye money. That's right. Scott cashed the check. 
and he picked up the trailer as requested and then stole all of it. John never heard from Scott Kimball again. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. 
Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. For more True Crime Garage, make sure you check us out on the Stitcher app for all of our episodes and check out our bonus show called Off the Record on Stitcher Premium. You can find that at truecrimegarage.com. Cheers, mates. Cheers. Now, in what continued to be a mind-boggling series of ill-advised decisions, the FBI made its first documented payment to Scott Kimball. This took place in May of 2003. They paid him 600 bucks. Again, what services he was rendering exactly are not clear. It seems that he must have been... Well, he was committing a bunch of crimes, so he's keeping <laughs> them in business. People around him are disappearing. It. I'm guessing, Captain, that he was manufacturing information, stringing the gullible agents along. Right. Then an arrest warrant was issued for Scott in the state of Washington for probation violations. This is for failing to report to his uh, P.O. Well, that might have been the straw, Captain, that broke the camel's back, so to speak, because it looks like Agent Schlaff. There was a lot of straws. A mountain of straws. That may have been, the agent may have finally wised up because he did revoke Scott's status as a paid informant at this time. And Schlaff put in a request that the warrant be issued for Scott's arrest. And so Scott was arrested in June of 2003 in Denver for the violation of parole. He was in charge while he was out of watching over Jennifer Markham, right? So now that Scott is in custody, the FBI wants to know where the hell is Jennifer Markham, right? He tells the FBI that Jennifer died at the hands of Jason Price, the drug dealer. He says Jason Price strangled her. Scott said that he had even seen photos of the body saying that the photos depicted Jennifer tied up with tape on her mouth. 
This was bad news for the FBI. Their informant failed to inform them that this woman, who he was supposed to watch for them, a potential witness in a big drug case, a potential uh, co-conspirator in a murder plot, was in danger, not only in danger, I guess, but now he's saying she's dead. She was murdered. The FBI wanted to know if they could trust Scott, so they administered a polygraph exam And the statements that I have seen from the FBI says that Scott Kimball managed to pass the polygraph test. Wow. That's surprising. Yeah. Yeah. So then Agent Schlaff arranged for Scott to be released, stating that Scott was a valuable asset who may be able to help determine where Jennifer's body is located. Now, not only was Scott released after this arrest warrant was quashed, he was reinstated as an an official FBI informant in mid-2003. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me 5,000 times. 5,000 times. Who who do we shame at this point? Everybody. Yeah. Everybody's shameful. Schlaff was completely snowed by Scott, obviously, which is ironic because the investigation into Scott Kimball, his time as an FBI informant and his crimes that he committed or is suspected of committing later would be called Operation Snowball. Because that story, that crime, that case just kept getting bigger and bigger. Now, after Scott told him that Jennifer Markham was dead, Schlaff finally arranged for a search of her car. Remember, we still have her vehicle. Yeah, I remembered. And and how many people right now are going, what the what? Right? Yeah. It's it's one thing if a criminal, a con man, a guy that's been doing this for years is able to maybe fool, let's just say, a, a naive young female. Uh, or an so, average Joe or, or an inmate or an inmate or yes. the parents of a missing person or maybe even a local uh, PO, right? May- maybe two guys that sit in their garage and have a fake radio show, right? Maybe the, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but that's what we have to go into next is how he, he conned us out. Well, I, I, some money. I know what you're getting at captain and real quick before we get into that. Cause I think that's, that's very important. That's key here. And it's interesting. It's, it's head spinning, but what you see in the actual paperwork is that the FBI clearly must believe that something sinister is going on here, whether they believe it be the problem is they just don't believe that Scott Kimball is the one orchestrating any of this because the paperwork, remember we said they're going to finally search the vehicle now that they found Jennifer Markham's vehicle. The affidavit in support of the search warrant request reads as follows. The whereabouts of Jennifer Markham cannot be determined. And there is probable cause to believe that she is the victim of a homicide. Now let's review really quickly here. Wait, wait, hold on. Here's the problem, right? Yo. You have this this female. She is a stripper. So, in, in whoever's eyes, FBI's eyes, for whatever reason, that's a strike against her. We also know that she's connected or has a boyfriend in jail that is a drug dealer. So, we know he's a piece of shit, right? And so, I think when you have these individuals 
and most of these individuals that Scott is giving you a story, he's saying, well, well, this other criminal killed her, or I believe he killed her. And so I think as far the reason why they're probably fooled is because everybody in the pot that they're looking at is essentially a, a criminal or has some ties to criminal activities. Well, no, I think you're 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 spot on with with most of that. I don't know. I mean, we could debate the stip, stripper thing all day and night. Who knows? But I think what we're seeing here is exactly what you're kind of getting to is the FBI seems to obviously believe that these other persons, this this Jason Price, this uh, the boyfriend that's still in prison, right. the Jennifer Markham who's now missing. They must believe that these three are all bigger criminals, much more criminals than this guy, Scott Kimball, who they have working for them. And I think when they're pushed into a corner and they finally go, all right, well, let's give him a polygraph. Let's see if maybe he is telling us the truth. We just have nothing to work off of. I get that he passed the polygraph and I get that that can really confuse you and, and, and get you turned around there. And maybe you believe him again which obviously they did because they they were going to handcuff him and then they decided not to. That's just proof he's, he's a and complete he's, psycho. And he's working again for them. I think where I really call this thing into question is when they find her vehicle, it, it's, just, it's even just Scott's actions, right? When they find her vehicle, they want to know, hey, Scott, where is this person? Why are we finding her vehicle? And his explanation is, well, she purchased a gun. She went off to New York City, and she's going there to kill the guy. Remember I said when I was in prison that her and her boyfriend are working on this murder plot. Right. She's actually going there to kill him. But it's like the FBI should be like, yo, dude, why didn't you tell us that? (laughs) Why did we have to come to you to find out that information? You're supposed to be coming to us. You're supposed to be watching her. Now you're telling us we can't find her because she went to New York City or to New York to kill this guy. And then when he's arrested, they go, oh, now we this is just two months later, right? One, two. Yeah. yeah. They're going, we really want to know where she is now. And then, then the story is the complete opposite. Oh, Jason Price killed Jennifer Markham. And so much so that I even saw pictures of the body and she was tied up and she had tape over her mouth. And again, it's like, why wouldn't you be okay, dude? Why did, why did we have to come to you to get this information? That is all you are in charge of is watching over this woman. And now you fed us two stories, one where she's going to go kill somebody and you didn't let us know. And two, the other story is now she's been murdered and uh-huh. you didn't let us know. But I also wonder how much information is he feeding them that is actually panning out. I, I think that's the problem is the when he passes that polygraph, I, f- I feel like that's like a wipes the slate clean. Well, like them. we like we always say, if, if it was up to us, it, you know, we would advise somebody that if you're charged with a crime and they ask, ask you to take a polygraph, there's nothing good that can come from it. Even if you pass, it's, it's not, you can't use that as evidence in a trial. But in this case, it's, it's a lie detector administered by the FBI and he passes. So anytime that 
somebody that in a case that we've covered, take like the John Benet Ramsey case, for example, they pass a polygraph three times. Makes me wonder about the how, how much I should put any weight into these polygraph tests. Or again, does this just show how completely psycho this individual is that he probably believes everything he's saying? So let's put Scott's professional antics on hold for a few minutes here and let's go back and revisit his personal life. Okay. We have two women that were connected to Scott. They are missing. That's Jennifer. That's Leanne. They went missing. Scott now needs to fill this female void in his life. So enter Lori McLeod. She's 39 years old, a divorced single mother, Lori met Scott at Denver's Lodge Casino sometime around February of 2003. Scott was wheeling his mother in a wheelchair up to the five-card poker table. Scott was very close with his, with his mom, Barb. He doted on her. And this must have appealed to Lori. So Scott told Lori when you know, they start talking, exchanging phone numbers, he tells her, hey, I'm an FBI agent, and he's divorced with two kids. They apparently hit it off right away. Which is a lot different than an FBI informant. <laughs> yeah, completely, complete, completely different. Um, and Laurie says that Scott loved the outdoors, he loved camping and hunting, and that he was a romantic. He, I guess he called her a lot in the beginning, paid a lot of attention to her, brought her flowers, and he always seemed to have plenty of cash. Now, Lori's 19-year-old daughter, Casey, seems like she likes Scott as well. This according to Lori. The three of them eventually moved in together, living together in a uh, suburb of Denver for a few months. But Casey, the daughter, had mm -hmm. some problems. Okay, At one point in her life, she was addicted to meth. Right. This was in the past, though. At this point on our timeline, she is clean. Yeah, it seems like she had a little hiccup in her life, and it wasn't, she wasn't, she's definitely going down the wrong path and hanging out with the wrong people, but it was for a short period of time. Yeah, and by this point, Scott is very intertwined in Casey's life and gave Lori, his girlfriend, the impression that he and Casey were not only very close, but he's also, like, helping her through these troubled times. Right. But in May of 2003, Casey slips up again. This time she's arrested for felony theft and forgery after admitting to buying more than $3,400 worth of merchandise, this using a stolen credit card. So now we have to go to August of 2003. This is when Scott shows Lori a glass vial of what she would later describe as a rock, uh, a white rock crystal substance. Mm -hmm. He said that it looked to him like he says this, he found this, this is Casey's uh, possession. And then it looked to him like Casey is using again. So of course, mother confronts daughter, Lori confronts Casey and threatens to call the police and Casey decides she's going to take off. Yeah, but she also said before she took off, hey, I, this is these are not my drugs. Right. I am clean. I've been clean. Hey, by the way, give me a drug test. If you yeah. don't believe me, give me a drug test. 
So, so then her mom doesn't believe her and doesn't believe her to the point where she doesn't even offer to let her prove her innocence. Scott says he's going to like try to help the situation. And his idea is he's going to get Casey a room at a motel six. So she has some place to stay, but it doesn't have to be with mom and boyfriend, right? Maybe a little space is needed between the two. So not only is Casey going to be staying there, but this is also so her boyfriend can stay there as well. After a few days of this arrangement, her boyfriend, Casey's boyfriend, shows up at Lori's house saying that Casey is gone. He does not know where she is, adding that the last time she that he saw Casey, she was leaving for her job at Subway. Right. Scott, mom's boyfriend, was the one that was supposed to be giving her a ride to work that evening. He said, the boyfriend said that Scott showed up to pick her up in his pickup truck with the trailer on the back. This is the trailer he stole from the doctor he met in prison. Right. Records show that Casey never went to work that day. So she, if we're to believe the boyfriend and these work records, she disappeared sometime between leaving for work and her 6 p.m. shift that day at Subway. Scott tells Lori this is a big mistake. And that he did not drive or never was going to drive Casey to work that day because he was already busy. He was out in the mountains hunting that day alone. He told Lori that he had called his contacts at the FBI to assist in helping to find Casey. Well, yeah, because I went to try to talk to the cops and say, hey, our daughter's missing. And the cops say, well, she's an adult. You can't file a missing person report Mm -hmm. so then scott you know ever the hero yeah hey i will i'll get to the bottom of this i have some contacts let me get some information so on august 31st this is eight days after casey went missing Lori and scott get married in vegas and they honeymooned in the mountains now note special note here these are the same this is the same area where he said he was hunting eight days earlier right Now, when they got back home, there was some indication that Casey had been there while they were gone, or at least as far as Scott was concerned. Scott pointed out these possible little indicators to Lori, showing her a gold necklace looped over a doorknob. Uh, This was the necklace Casey was believed to be wearing when she was last seen. Scott also pointed out a makeup box that was moved to a different location. So, he, they come back home, and he's pointing out, look, it appears that sh- someone has been here, and it was probably Casey, judging by this uh, necklace. I believe he also told her that he he got some eyewitness account uh, that somebody saw Casey. Yeah. So he he's just fabricating all this stuff. Well, and the difficult thing here, too, for Lori then becomes that, that Christmas, at Christmas time, Casey never comes home. She never contacts mom, never contacts her biological father and her parents, Lori and Lori's ex-husband, Rob, they were really reduced to the idea at this point that look, the drugs had taken their daughter again. She's off on a bender. She's using meth again. And hopefully she'll come home when she either hits rock bottom or needs money or, or something. Mm Mm-hmm. 
But these months will turn into years. Casey simply may just be gone. Now, after they were married, Scott and Lori wanted to start a business. They moved to... They moved to Adams County um, to start Faith Farms, a beef wholesale business. In July of 2004, there was a terrible accident on the farm. Scott's 10-year-old son from his marriage to Larissa Hentz was playing when a 200-pound metal grate fell on top of him. Now, instead of waiting for an ambulance, Scott picks up the boy his name's Justin, puts him in his Jeep and then takes off hightailing it to the, the um, hospital. Mm-hmm. Somehow along the way, Justin, the boy, falls out of the vehicle. Now, when they finally arrived at the hospital, Justin is in very, he's in very bad shape. He had emergency surgery on his brain and skull, his skull was fractured. And he went into a coma that lasted weeks. Justin's recovery was slow. And so because of this accident and because of the recovery process, Scott's 60-year-old uncle, his name's Terry, moved from Alabama to help take care of the recuperating boy. Terry moved in with Scott and Lori and worked with Scott in this beef business that they have started up. But then, just like that, Captain Uncle Terry, boom, poof, he's gone. Right. Lori came home one day. This is at the end of August. And she said that she found her sofa sitting outside covered in vomit. Scott said that the vomit was from Uncle Terry's dogs, that the dogs were sick. And Scott told Lori, Uncle Terry hit it big. He won the lottery. And he and the dogs and a stripper named Ginger took all of the money and they left for Mexico. Okay, this is a weird story in itself, but what is even more weird, Lori says that all of Terry's stuff was still left behind in the guest room where he was staying. It's like him, the dogs, and this woman that she never met took off for Mexico and all of his stuff was still still there and but hold on what makes it not so weird is that uncle terry actually did come into some money somehow mm-hmm. so he had some money he would he actually carried some money in a briefcase around with him and, and would talk about the you know this the stack of money that he came into so i don't think it's when you know that somebody came into money and then you go hey guess what he he, he not only did he come into some money, but he won a bunch of money. He won the lottery, he, and now he's beyond rich. Yeah, you're sitting there going, oh, okay, that's where that money came from. Right. Well, in October of 2004, Scott ventured further into the beef business, starting Rocky Mountain All-Natural Beef with his brother Brett and his mom Barb. This was in Lafayette, Colorado, where Scott grew up. Scott bought seed cattle for the business from a livestock exchange using a check for $11,617.50. This check was under the name Terry Kimball, a.k.a. Uncle Terry. Mm -hmm. The check 
bounced like a basketball, but Scott had already taken the cattle back to his ranch. And of course, he did not give the livestock exchange his real name or his address. The livestock exchange filed a complaint against Terry Kimball with the Department of Agriculture two months later. But as we already said, Terry Kimball was in Mexico with his dogs and ginger. All right, Colonel, do we have any recommended reading this week? Why, yes, we do there, Captain. This week we are recommending, this is actually one that we recommended probably a year or so ago, but I'm reading it again for the second time, and he was such a good guest on the show, I thought, we got to recommend this one again. It's called In the Name of the Children, an FBI Agent's Relentless Pursuit of the Nation's Worst Predators, and that is by Jeffrey Reinick, who was on our show Quite some time ago, 30-year career with the FBI, was kind enough to come on our show. Check that book out. You don't have to write that title down now. Just go to truecrimegarage.com, click on the recommended page. You'll find that great title there, as well as many others. And if you'd like to get your computer shirt, limited edition computer shirt, make sure you click on the store page, and we'll see you next week. Very limited. There's like four of them. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.